Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, the non-titled fourth woman. <laughs> sure, sure you are. <laughs> so uh, since Jason is now uh, always uh, relating himself back to the film that we're discussing, that reference is to the film Three Women, which is the subject of this episode in our season on the films of 1977. And uh, normally in this episode, in past seasons, we have talked about the top prize winner, the Palme d'Or winner from the Cannes Film Festival. But uh, that's not what we're doing. The movie that won at the Cannes Film Festival in 1977 is a film called Padre Padrone, uh, an Italian film from the Traviani, I think it's Traviani Brothers, and it's uh, it's an interesting film. It's uh, it's I guess what you would call a, a tough sit. It's got some uh, some actual animal cruelty in it. It's got some uh, some simulated uh, bestiality. It's a coming of age drama about a Sardinian uh, shepherd and his abusive father, based on a memoir by uh, an actual guy who also appears to sort of introduce the movie. And it's streaming on Canopy if you're curious about it. I think it's uh, maybe interesting to explore, but not quite a good candidate for us to talk about an entire episode. So instead, we are looking at Robert Altman's Three Women, which also competed for the Palme d'Or at Cannes and did win the Best Actress Award for its star, Shelley Duvall. So that's where we're at with that. This movie also won awards for Shelley Duvall from the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, uh, was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Actress for her and her co-star, Sissy Spacek, one Best Supporting Actress from the New York Film Critics Circle. So uh, it was critically acclaimed and awarded in some circles, but I think following up on some of Altman's movies uh, in recent years before this, which included Nashville and MASH, it didn't get the same level of awards attention as previous Altman films did. And it's not entirely surprising why that was. It was, uh, I was trying to find the box office numbers for this and I couldn't end up getting anything. It had a budget of $1.7 million and uh, I'm not sure how well it did at the box office. It's definitely not the kind of movie that would be a box office success. It is kind of a, a strange film. It does not feature Jason Harris as the fourth woman, <laughs> but it does feature Shelley Duvall and uh, Sissy Spacek as the main stars and then also uh, Janice Rule as the the third woman who is a, a lesser uh, kind of character in this film. But Sissy Spacek and uh, Shelley Duvall play a pair of women living in the Southern California desert, in the Coachella Valley area, working at a, a, a spa, I guess, or a sort of a health facility for senior citizens. And uh, they become, well, I'm not sure exactly what they become. They sort of become friends and then they become roommates and then they become something else. So, you know, thankfully, Josh, we have Jada Pinkett Smith nowadays to give us words like entanglement. And, <laughs> yes, uh, that's kind of what happened here. They became entangled. Maybe one single white female, the other, maybe the other kind of took back the power in this uh, dynamic at one point in time. And, uh, and of course they brought the third woman in there too. There's a, there's a mishmash. Um, you know, I actually think that uh, one of the things I looked up was that one of the uh, taglines for it, which I think is uh, offbeat, but extremely accurate, is uh, uh, one woman became two, two women became three, three women became one. That yeah. pretty much sums it up. So. Oh, it's yeah. like that Spice Girls song, Two Become One. It's uh, just like that. Yeah, the, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that... Um, the Spice Girls were inspired by this film because I don't know, Jerry Hollowell, Mel B, Victoria Beckham. I don't know if they're Altman fans or not, or fans of avant-garde cinema, but who's to say? And uh, who did I leave out? Emma Bunton and another one where well, there's a fifth one. But, Mel C. You got Mel B, but not Mel C. Oh, sporty. Sorry, sporty spice. <laughs> yes. So unknown whether the Spice Girls were fans of this movie, but critics were fans of it generally. 
Um, Roger Ebert said, Robert Altman's Three Women is, on the one hand, a straightforward portrait of life in a godforsaken California desert community, and on the other, a mysterious exploration of human personalities. Its specifics are so real you can almost touch them, and its conclusions so surreal we can supply our own. The movie's story came to Altman during a dream, he said, and he provides it with a dreamlike tone. The plot connections, which sometimes make little literal sense, do seem to connect emotionally, viscerally, as all things do in dreams. To act in a story like this must be a great deal more difficult than performing straightforward narrative. But Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall go through their changes so well that it's eerie and unforgettable. So is the film. So, yeah, the thing that comes up about this movie over and over that is that Robert Altman did base it on a dream that he right. had. And Which is not surprising if you watch the movie. And he's driving to the airport and he tells his compadre, hold on, stop off at Fox. I want to go sell it to Laddie, who we've mentioned before. As <laughs> Oh, yeah. Junior. So he 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 greenlit both Star Wars and this movie. So yeah. he's definitely a, a risk taker. Right. And I think, again, this is and he and he sold the movie to him. And I think Alan Ladd Jr. probably wasn't again, like we talked about with Star Wars. He probably wasn't like, yes, this does sound like a fun idea for a film. He was probably like, you're Robert Altman. I believe in the, in the filmmakers, like, you know, and uh, I'm going to give you a shot with this and we're not going to make it a huge budget. I wish there was more of that maverick spirit going on today. But yeah, that is the one thing that comes up. But, and I do agree with Ebert on um, the specificity, especially in Shelley Duvall's character, is really one of the strengths in this movie, you know? Yeah, I agree. And and a lot of that, I think, even though Altman, I mean, he based it on his dream and then he wrote a script, but I, I think a lot of this stuff was improvised. And I think I saw somewhere that Shelley Duvall really developed her own character a lot, including the uh, recipes that she's obsessed with, which is one of the funniest, uh, most entertaining aspects of this movie is her character, Millie, has uh, a, a, a real fondness for recipes, for making really awful sounding foods and <laughs> bragging about doing so. I felt like she was sort of the embodiment of there's, there's like a Twitter account that tweets out horrible sounding recipes from 1970s cookbooks. And I feel oh. like she, she's like the, the mascot for that. I need that. I need that. I need that right there. There but, you uh, go. I forget go. what it's called, but you can definitely find it online. But um, yeah, that, so what I had read was you're, you're right. She, the recipes, the journal, the diary entries she wrote herself. She decorated the apartment herself that the the two characters lived in. And um, there's a lot of there's a couple of scenes where that character has to go shopping for like dinner parties, and she went and actually did the shopping. So um, I think with the when you put when you suggested like, hey, maybe this is the movie we cover because of Shelley Duvall winning Best Actress at Cannes, like. She did a lot and she was what like 28 at the time like this is a really mature performance for someone at that age I think. Yeah, she's great and even if you don't know all of that background I mean you, what you see on screen is a great performance and then when you realize how much she brought to the movie it's uh it's even more impressive and the fact that she decorated the apartment and came up with those recipes is really an effective portrayal of someone with horrible taste. Well, <laughs> And you mentioned improv, which we've obviously talked about in a number of episodes. Uh, yeah. Christopher Guest, uh, Waiting for Guffman comes to mind. But Robert Altman, you know, famous for um, utilizing improvisation and building the characters. And this may be more in the way of Mike Lee, um, where we talked about in Secrets and Lies, where there we have a script or what appears to be a script, but we're spending time before the movie learning the character, building the character, and getting these beats down. So... What you're seeing on screen isn't necessarily, oh, we just came up with this in the spur of the moment. This is workshop after workshop after workshop to build to get to this place. Right. It's a collaborative process between Robert Altman and the actors, which is something he is definitely known for in, in other films as well. Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, in the course of the film, in sequences that sometimes seem absolutely natural and at other times absurdist, these three women merge into one person who is mother, daughter, and granddaughter, isolated but serenely self-sufficient. Now, I suppose someone is bound to ask what it really is about. I'm not sure, but there are a number of possibilities. Since it is the movie maker's dream more than that of the characters within, 
It seems to be a consideration of today's women. It's not a narrative in any strict sense, but a contemplation of three stages of a woman's life by a man who appreciates women and may not be without a bit of guilt. It's also about youth and age and, as are all Altman films, about the quality of American life. Let it go at that and don't worry too much. So I think <laughs> don't, there's, there's don't look so many deeper, Josh. Right. Well, no, but I think what he's saying here is not don't look deeper. I mean, obviously, he has just in, in the preceding sentences there looked deeper and offered some theories as to what the movie is about. But I think the point is that you can appreciate the movie without having to sort of figure it out, without having to come to some sort of conclusion about what everything means. And I mean, I think that's true. I think it's less about trying to like, parse it through and decide, okay, this is what it's really saying. Then it is about just kind of having the experience. I, I think that's fair. You know, we, we've talked about films that we appreciate more than enjoy. And I could see that not saying I didn't enjoy this one, but um, yeah, at the same time, I could see audiences, especially now coming out with like, what, what is that ending? You know, but, um, but that's okay. I, I don't mind it. I know they keep a lot of the reading I did, you know, the different stages of, uh, womanhood of daughter, mother, grandmother. And I get where they're going with that grandmother thing, but I don't really think that that one, I don't think is as apropos as the other two, the daughter and the mother. Right. And I think there's a, a sense of like sort of the different characters cycling through as the movie progresses, where they represent those different things at different points in the movie. Right. There is that grandmother figure at the end of the movie, if we want to jump ahead there. But um, for the most part, I think these characters are sort of, you're right, that they're embodying those two roles in sort of alternating ways throughout the film. But again, it's it's interesting to ponder that, but I feel like you can not understand it and still get a lot out of the movie. So finally, uh, Ruth Batchelor in the Los Angeles Free Press said... There are so many unanswered questions that you can ask and talk about the movie for days afterwards. If it were all wrapped up in a neat little package, like Millie's yellow apartment, would we even bother to think about it later? I doubt it. People have compared this movie to Ingmar Bergman's style. I say it's all Altman's, but the pacing, camera work, and in-depth character studies have a European flavor we don't often find in American films. These are fragile ladies who are also survivors. There's a strong undertone of woman's desperate need for man. But if you go through life craving oranges and all you can find are lemons, you can learn to live with them. Is that what you're saying, Mr. Altman? So she has another kind of not entirely clear to me interpretation of what this movie is about oranges and lemons that I, I feel like she's saying something about women you know, they need a man, but then they just find each other instead and that, that they learn to live with that. Um, but I'm not sure if that's exactly what she means. Well, though Millie, especially a lot of her self-esteem and self-confidence is based on, you know, bragging about the dates that she goes on and gets, even though, as we learn, she doesn't really get a lot of these dates. And the person she sleeps with is one of the other woman's uh husband and that woman willie is giving birth at the or is pregnant so there's a lot of self-confidence issues i'd say um or need for the ego to be built up through that kind of sexual liberated conquest or whatever it is that both men and women over the ages have had especially with that character and um I do want to say, though, I, I don't know why this uh, reviewer said that it's not. I think didn't Altman say that uh, Bergman was very influential on this film? Persona? I think so. That definitely came up a lot. I don't know if I saw Altman himself saying it, but he may have. It certainly was mentioned in a lot of places. So, um, well, she says people have compared and Altman is a person. So, <laughs> right. I mean, even even working out the thoughts as we speak, you see, like they're, they're, we have to be a little more kind of didactic and methodical. There's a lot to work out in this movie. There is. And I think that that's a strength of it. And, and again, going back to what Vincent Canby said, I think it's okay if you don't understand all of it, that you can still get a lot out of it. And, and when you come down to it, the fact that it's based on a dream, I don't think Altman would say, oh, I understood exactly what that dream meant. 
and exactly like how it fit together. He just was was struck by it and it stuck in his mind and he decided he needed to create it in some way. And so just like that, just like you might wake up from a dream and not understand everything about what it meant, I think it's okay that if you don't understand everything about what this movie means and you can look at what people say, what reviewers, what critics have said, what what other uh, scholars or whatever have said and find it interesting, but it doesn't have to all fit together perfectly in order to appreciate the movie. I think that's fair, Josh. Thank you, Jason. So um, had you had you ever seen this before? No, I am critically underviewed on, um, I guess you would say, the, the boom period of Altman in the 70s. I've seen a lot more of like the 90s stuff and forward, but um, this one, I honestly didn't even know this movie until we started talking about it. Yeah, I think this is one of his movies that has really gained in reputation over the years, but there was a long period of time where it was unavailable to watch. So I think people sort of forgot about it a little, even though critics liked it a lot at the time. I think there was a, a, a sort of middle period where it got tossed to the side. And certainly as far as 70s stuff goes, as I mentioned, M.A.S.H., and Nashville, which were in the years preceding this, are, are much more well-known and highly regarded. But this movie, I think in the last maybe 20 or so years, has built that reputation back up. I know when I was first kind of getting interested in Altman, and, li and like you, I saw a lot of his 90s stuff first, The Player and Shortcuts. Those were uh, two of his really, really big movies in the 90s that I, I loved. Um, and I was interested in seeing more of his films. This was one that came up and I rented it on DVD some some number of years ago just to watch on my own. And I think I was confused and baffled by it at the time. Um, and, and maybe didn't, I think maybe at that time I expected something a little more straightforward or a little easier to interpret and was maybe a little annoyed. And, and I think this time I was able to just go with it and enjoy it more. But I too, I mean, Altman was extremely prolific during, during his lifetime. And so I've seen quite a few of his films, but there's still like probably, you know, 15 to 20 Altman movies or something that I haven't seen, including a lot from this, this seventies period in which he was very busy. But I was, I was interesting to revisit this movie after uh, not having seen it for a number of years. Yeah, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, Josh, is like, you know, we're talking about Bergman here, but yeah. I feel like there was a lot of French New Wave influence on this movie that maybe wasn't discussed by any of these major reviewers. Yeah, possibly so. I mean, to be fair, I, I don't know about you, but I have not seen Persona, the, the Bergman movie that's that's cited here uh, frequently, so I can't really say how it compares. But I do think some of the camera work, and and that, as, as Ruth Batchelor mentions in that review, and she just says it has kind of a European flavor. And that could encompass the French New Wave as well as Bergman films. But uh, some of the his tendency to like kind of have these these quick zooms and things like that within a shot, I thought was a bit a bit French New Wavey. So there's there's some of that. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can see that. Well, I feel validated like Shelley Duvall's character after a good date with a man. All right. <laughs> Dave, had you ever seen this before? I had not. This this very well might be the first Altman movie I've seen. Actually, oh man, you've never seen Nashville or the player? I know. And it, it's something I, I've always wanted to check them out, and I just I don't think I've ever seen it. I might have back in high school. It's one of those things, but uh, yeah, I was really really happy to you know have a reason to push myself to watch one though. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that's what we do here at Awesome Movie Year. We that's give people right. a chance to explore film history, Name, namely Dave. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe if nothing else. <laughs> maybe one other person uh, beyond Dave. You know, if we can get one person to watch a Robert Altman movie, then we've done our jobs. Well, hey, man, you know that's that's one of the strengths of, um, or one of the things we're proud of here. Even even Josh, you and I, who both, uh, I mean, you've watched more movies than uh, most people in history, Josh. Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I I consider myself quite a connoisseur and film school and blah, 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 all this nonsense. But this is one I would have never probably had. Um, this one probably would have stayed under my radar if not for this podcast. Yeah, well, it's, it, it is uh, an opportunity for all of us to uh, explore some things that we might not otherwise have done. And that's always, uh, it's always a fun experience to have. Do you have any other background things you want to mention on this one, Jason? I think we kind of went over it that, you know, what a, what a, 
cool time period to be an auteur where you can just go in and be like, I had a dream. All right, go make it a movie, right? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, only only like Christopher Nolan can do that these days. I think. Right, right. Uh, I, I want to get into some of the technical merits, but I think that that'll probably uh, go in our next segment. Didn't Ebert pick this as his best film of 1977 when we're talking about accolades for whatever that's worth? I know it's on his great movies list. Yeah, it is on his great movies list. And you may be right about that. I, I hadn't seen that, but it's entirely possible. I didn't look up his top 10 list. So it he clearly liked it quite a lot. And I think he was a, a big Altman uh, supporter throughout Altman's career. So absolutely, that's possible. So um, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on three women. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we're talking about Robert Altman's Three Women, an award winner at the Cannes Film Festival for its performance by Shelley Duvall. And, and maybe we can start there. We, we've been talking a bit about her performance and about how closely she worked with Robert Altman to develop this character of Millie but it is just a fantastic performance. And it's a great reminder that Shelley Duvall was a great actor in like the 70s and 80s. And she's she's been retired for the past uh, almost 20 years now. So we don't really see much about her anymore. But I, for a while, she was both a big star and a great actor. Yeah, I think so. And um, synonymous with a lot of Altman projects. Yes. Um, it's kind of sad, you know, now. I mean, she did a lot of kind of kids stuff. uh you know, uh, kids programming and everything. But the last kind of word on her was that uh, I think she did a segment on Dr. Phil a few years ago where she was refusing treatment and uh, people were saying that Dr. Phil was exploiting her mental illness, which really would Dr. Phil ever exploit someone? But it's kind of <laughs> sad. And I do think right now she is one of those actresses that because she retired um, when she did, we don't necessarily look at her in the same light uh, as other great actresses from this time. Yeah, this was a tour de force. Um, I, I don't know who was nominated for uh, Best Actress this year. I'll have to look it up. I'm sure I, I think probably Diane Keaton won. Right. But it's kind of weird that she got all these accolades and then was just snubbed in the Oscars for it. Yeah. And, and also because Altman uh, had made Oscar nominated films in, in recent years before this movie. But it does seem like this was a movie that even if it got good reviews from critics, it just didn't sort of enter the wider conversation. Um, and she was nominated for that BAFTA, which is a fairly major award, but not, uh, not at the Oscars, unfortunately. So, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great performance and it's a great balance. I think because in the first half of the movie, it's almost comedic. We see Millie, as you were sort of alluding to before, as this kind of pathetic figure. You know, she's always talking about her dinner parties and her recipes and the dates that she's going on and the people that she knows. And and no one likes her. Everyone just kind of ignores her or talks behind her back and finds her annoying. You know, she's like, oh, this bar, this is the bar I love to hang out with. And no one at that bar actually wants to talk to her. No one in the apartment complex where she lives wants her around. And yet she sort of projects that, that blithe confidence throughout. And it's not clear whether she's unaware or she's just ignoring it. And she's trying to use sort of the power of positive thinking to get people to like her. But it's a really vivid character portrayal, I think. And then she has to shift into this more, you know, in this sort of darker uh, mode, the darker tone of the second half of the movie where she gets panicked and scared as, as Sissy Spacek's character, Pinky, is sort of taking over her life. So I think she does a great job. And Sissy's basic is great in this too. I mean, and she's, she's what you were saying where she's continued yeah. to work all the way through. And so we're, we're much more aware of how great Sissy Spacek is, but she is great in this movie. Um, and this was right after she was in Carrie, which is just one of the like great performances of all time, I think. So yeah, the, the acting is great in this movie. And I think it has to be because it's so dreamlike and, and the narrative isn't exactly tight that you really need those performances to carry the movie. Yeah, so real fast, Josh, I looked it up. Uh, Diane Keaton did win for Annie Hall. The other nominees, yeah. Anne Bancroft, The Turning Point, uh, Jane Fonda, Julia, Shirley MacLaine, The Turning Point, and Marsha Mason, The Goodbye Girl. So heavy hitters won and all, right? 
But to go back to what you're saying, I took it as she was completely unaware that everyone disliked her, which made the first half of the movie even more jarring because Sissy SpaceX character is so enamored with her and thinks she's just the best person that there is and like constantly talks about her. So you're like, you're on this weird tilt of, uh, let's say, I, I mean, there's mental illness going on here with all these characters. And right from the beginning, from those opening shots of just like you were saying, those weird zooms into the pool and everything like that, you're getting that. But is anyone is anyone healthy in this movie? Maybe Tom, the guy who lives downstairs, who's having barbecues. That's about it. But and has a cold. Oh, so then, well, he doesn't. Yeah, so. He doesn't really have a cold. He just pretends to have a cold, so that's he doesn't right. have to go on a date with Millie. Yeah, yeah, but uh, and that's one of the the very funny touches that every time she walks by him, he like sneezes or coughs. It's great, yeah. it's, and it's consistent throughout the movie. Yeah, and that's an Altman. You know, when you think of Altman and you think of these background sounds and just how dense he's able to soundtrack things and put background dialogue in. But there is that point where after Sissy SpaceX character, Pinky Rose, whose real name is Mildred. So we have Mildred, Millie and Willie as our three lead, three women. She jumps off a balcony and goes into a coma. And that leads us to the second half of the film. And her parents come out and that's a whole nother weird sub subplot we should get into. But when uh, Millie is taking uh, Pinky Rose's parents back to the apartment and they pass Tom and the gang. And she says, no, I can't eat with you guys tonight. I'm going to cook for the roses. And it's like, no one asked you, bro. <laughs> you know, like it's a very <laughs> revealing moment, but there's so many of those with her. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's an interesting character to be that narcissistic and un just unaware at the same time. Right. Yeah. Because you think of those kinds of narcissistic characters as people who actually are loved by everyone and and sort of cultivate that. And that's not something that's going on here at all. But it is it is fascinating to watch and all the little details. I mean, again, as we mentioned, she herself, Shelley Duvall, created some of the the background stuff and the, the way the character decorates her apartment and the recipes that she's into, but just little touches like the way that she always catches her dress in the door of her car when she closes it. Right. Which Did was you something read that about happened. that? Yeah. 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 It was something that happened accidentally in one take and Altman loved it. And so he decided to have them do it over and over again, but it's great. I mean, even if it was an accident, it tells you so much about that character just in that little thing. And you, maybe you don't notice it the first time it happens, but as it happens over and over again, you realize that it's happening. Um, yeah, so that's fantastic. And and her transformation is sort of not as uh, extreme as the transformation that Sissy Spacek has to undergo. And her performance also great, where she's this very timid, sort of meek person in the first half of the movie who, like you said, is she admires Millie. She sort of idolizes Millie and is in awe of her. And then after she comes out of this coma, she sort of becomes Millie, but she becomes like a better version of Millie. She becomes the Millie that Millie wishes she could be, where she's super confident and everyone notices it. Everyone likes her. Tom and the barbecue dudes want to spend time with her. And, you know, the guys at the bar want to shoot guns with her and she's sexy and she's appealing. And she also gets to possibly sleep with uh, Edgar, Willie's good for nothing husband. So that's a, a really impressive performance as well from Sissy Spacek and being able to chart that transformation and then transforming again at the end of the movie, almost back into this immature character when she becomes sort of the daughter figure with Millie and with Willie as the grandmother. Yeah. Maybe. So, so yeah, to jump on that, I think, like you said, like her transformations are uh, brought uh, bigger, let's say from character to character, because like she is becoming Millie to the nth degree, right? That, that uh, idolized uh, imagined version of Millie and, and she's a better Millie than Millie is. Right. Um, according to the people around her. And then, she regresses not back to what she was, but to a much even younger, more innocent version of whatever character she started with. But I do want to say that Millie character, I do think had a big transformation because after uh, Pinky goes into the coma and she kind of has to become like subservient to her as she comes out and everything just becomes in service of her. It, it changes literally like 
every bit of her persona at that point in time. She does become kind of subservient. And I think part of it is that she's been in her life, projected that confidence so much. And she's used to just barreling over everyone, even if they don't like her and they don't want to talk to her, she just kind of barrels through anyway. And Pinky at that point after the coma is maybe the first person or the first person in a long time who's actually like kind of barreled over her and told her what to do. Um, I mean, even the boss at the the health spa where they work, who is is bossy and they don't like her, but she kind of just brushes off the stuff that the boss tells her to do. But she can't brush off what Pinky is telling her. Well, yeah, and that between that and the guilt and the emotional impact of uh, basically kind of uh, triggering Pinky's suicide attempt, you know, that 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 all becomes just too much. And then and then, you know, where we see it begin to turn again is when Pinky has that weird dream with all these images. And she asks Millie if, uh, you know, she can sleep in the same bed as her. And that, and now we're getting to that mother daughter relationship that goes just totally, totally further when um, Willie has the stillborn baby. And then, uh, and then Millie slaps Pinky for not going and getting help and, it's a, it's a, a series of uh, traumatic events there that lead to it. So it's a, it's a weird movie. Can we talk about uh, like a lot of these technical merits? Like right away, you notice sure. that the, the music, Gerald Busby, like he sets the tone with this. And Dave, you want to chime in there? Like right away, just these kind of almost sounds like they're not they're not full music pieces. They're just kind of like s- musical sounds put together to make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, it's really dissonant and like really, you know, immediately that you're not in for something like very straightforward based on that, that kind of score. Yeah. It's a, it's a really jarring, but it is, it is very effectively mood setting. And especially in the early part of the movie where things seem like they're slightly more normal, like, Oh, it's mm-hmm. just these young women working together and they're getting to know each other. But every time those music cues come in, it's 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 indicating to you like no something else is going on here and you just you wait until you really see what's happening so right yeah the music is fantastic and of course I assume you're going to talk about the paintings yeah the paintings and oh, you go ahead Josh take it yeah I mean the paintings which is the first image that we see in the movie the paintings that are that are done by Willie the character were created by this artist named Bodie Wind and I don't even know how to describe them there's these grotesque some of them are women, but some of them are men and they're sort of sexually exaggerated, but they're also violent and they're, they're almost, they look like lizard people or something, but they're very, very unsettling. I think like the music, you see those paintings at the beginning and you think, whoa, something weird is happening here, even though nothing weird has yet happened. And they're always in the background. They look ancient. They look ancient as well. Like the style is very ancient. Yeah, it does look like that. Like it's cave paintings or something like that. And then you realize it's a modern It's one of the characters is doing these and they just treat them so casually. I mean, they're on the bottom of the pool in their apartment complex. Like who would live there with those paintings on the bottom of the pool? And, and, and Millie just says, oh yeah, you know, Willie, she did those paintings a while back. No big deal. Yeah. Well, Hey, you know, one thing we know about that high desert area of uh, Southern California is it's known for attracting oddball characters to live there. And I think it was a really perfect setting for this and between the kind of, I guess, Palmdale style apartments and that Dodge City bar where where we in Las Vegas might, we have one kind of on the outskirts here, the Pioneer Saloon, which is like an old honky tonk country bar, but we don't have a shooting range and a dirt bike track and back. I thought it was really good use of environment as well. Yeah, it is. I was wondering about some of those places, whether they're there still, because I've spent a good amount of time in the Coachella Valley. My dad lives in that area. And I'm not sure exactly where those places are. They shot this in Palm Springs and in uh, Desert Hot Springs in that area. But it definitely does evoke that, I think. It's it's Southern California, but it's not L.A. It's not the typical Southern California area you would see in a Hollywood movie. And so I think that that the quirkiness, and as you mentioned, that area is known for attracting a lot of uh, interesting artistic types, especially in places like Joshua Tree, and then that combined with the sort of desolation of the open desert, like they're always, the, whenever they drive from one place to yeah. another, they're just driving through the middle of nothing. Right. 
it definitely contributes. And, and we don't have that as much anymore in Vegas. But when we were teenagers out here, we did have that, you know, that kind of desolate desert feel with the city beside it in a bigger city. But I always like that in art, you know, and, you know, we uh, there's a lot of music I like that kind of is inspired by that. And um, movies, you know, we've talked about uh, either on this or Dave's podcast. And I mean, we just did the Palm Springs episode of uh, piecing it together. I, I always like that setting. I want to uh, also discuss, man, dude, we know this already, but dude, the way he moves the camera is really, really unique. You mentioned the zooms. They're so uncomfortable, right? Right. Like, (laughs) what do you, sometimes he just zooms from like a character to like a product or a door for no reason or something. And it's like, like, it'll be like, oh, I just got back from grocery shop. Why are you putting a close up on that shrimp cocktail or something for no reason? And it's like, (laughs) but um, those zooms really, which I think like, you know, if you were, quote unquote taught how to direct this movie and you're like I'm just gonna zoom into random things and be like you're a fucking asshole why are you doing that right like but it really really enhances the mood and then I love what he does with the masters those kind of moving masters at Altman and Woody Allen um where they start on someone's action and then they just follow it into the main character's action and move the camera and stay with that uh person instead so you're really moving the camera slightly because you're in a master, but like you're sequencing two bits of action to get into the main, the main action of the bit. So um, really interesting stuff. Yeah, it is fantastic. And Altman is known too for, I mean, this movie is not as filled with characters as some of his well-known other films are, but he's certainly known for orchestrating these big scenes full of characters and being able to move the camera around within those scenes to catch different bits of conversation and, and stuff like that. So um, it is pretty impressive. And those zooms definitely, I mean, just like the music and just like the paintings, they contribute to that sense even early on when nothing strange has really happened yet, but the sense that this is dreamlike or this is surreal and you should be expecting weird stuff to come because just the way that this is being presented is weird and off-putting. Um, all of those shots too, where he shoots through the water, like there's a, yeah, there's an aquarium in, in Millie's apartment that we see, uh, action kind of filtered through and the, the pool in the apartment complex. And just, there's a lot of water throughout this movie as, as part of, again, I think the symbolism that goes to both dreams and to the idea of women and childbirth. And that's certainly uh, a common symbol, I think for that. And also I think like we talked about the high desert there, you know, that's, we are always thinking about stuff like, uh, you know, swimming or, you know, hydrating out here where I think in, if you grow up in other places, you're not necessarily, uh, it's not as prevalent, but yeah, the zooms, uh, the zooms in conjunction with the music, like that's, that's where it really hits (laughs) like the height of, um, just off-puttedness, I would say, you know, like it's not, it's not a movie where you're like, Oh, this was a real fun, easy popcorn watch here or something. So no, definitely not a fun, easy popcorn watch, but not like, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. It's, it's not a tough sit. Like I was referring to Padre Padron where, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing there either, but it's just the idea that these are, these are difficult things to kind of watch and experience. And I didn't feel that way about this. I mean, it really is, especially in the first half. I forgot that it was quite it funny. funny. I mean, especially in Shelley Duvall's performance. Yeah, I do think it's funny as well. Um, and and she she's so funny because she's not trying to be funny at all. And that's right. what's funny about her. Um, yeah, the last thing, I mean, we kind of we kind of touched on it, but nobody does those kind of sound overlaps and um dialogue overlaps. Like that's that's what Altman's, you know probably as famous for as anything, I'd say. Yeah, that is what he's known for. And I think, like I was saying, is sort of maybe in these movies that have these larger ensemble casts like Nashville and MASH or later on in in something like Gosford Park, where he's known for having orchestrated that stuff and the conversations overlap. But even in this movie, we have a lot of that, especially in the scenes early on when they're working at at the Hell Spa and we have the other employees who are having their own conversations and, and ignore, they ignore Millie and they also ignore Pinky. Yeah. They, they clearly don't have any interest in either of them. And there's a lot of early sort of symbolism in those scenes. We have the characters who are twins um, who both mm-hmm. work at the health spa, who are obviously 
a sort of bit of foreshadowing for the way that Millie and Pinky are going to become each other in a way. Uh, there's a lot of doubling too in the visual sense. There, there'll be uh, shots where uh, the lens kind of um, shows a, a, a character, like a mirror image of a character or literal characters looking into mirrors and seeing yeah. their reflections. So uh, Jason, you and I, uh, we, we ha have uh, talked a lot with Tony Macklin, the uh, great film critic who uh, is definitely an Altman fan. And I was trying to remember if we had actually watched this movie in our, our film club that we used to have with Tony Macklin, uh, where we would have him come over and, and educate us on certain films. And, and we didn't, I don't think, but we may have watched another Altman movie. But Tony always talks about doubles when he uh, talks about some of his favorite films or films he finds most interesting. And there's obviously a lot of that doubling going on in this movie, even before we get the sort of switching of personas. And, and also even on task where like, right, where Billy is quote unquote training Pinky and we see these uh, old people in the hot tub and like kind of, uh, Pinky's already there with her patient. And then once Millie comes in, she basically mimics exactly what Millie's doing. And even that's like really uncomfortable because she gets caught like being outside of where she's supposed to be. So she runs back in and closes the curtain. And when the boss like opens the curtain, like Pinky's just waiting there, like staring into the abyss, waiting for someone to stare at. <laughs> so strange, strange stuff. Let's talk a little about, and spoiler alerts, as we know the ending there. Um, where we've already said Willie kind of has this uh, stillborn baby. It's a very, very uh, unpleasant scene to watch as uh, Millie does her best to save the child's life. Uh, and she says it's a boy and it's dead, basically. And so that's where Willie kind of becomes like this older woman. I'm not going to say put out to pasture, but they've taken the stress off of her of day-to-day -day chores, right? And then... Uh, Millie becomes the the mom figure, as we've talked about, that kind of runs Dodge City now. And and uh, after she just slaps the uh, the taste out of Pinky's mouth and leaves that uh, fluid and blood on her from her hands, like I think that kind of snaps Pinky into that regression as to the child. But then we get to the delivery man who comes in and you know is just making his delivery of cokes and. He says, yeah, weird, uh, sad about Edgar, you know, uh, such a talented, uh, so talented with the gun. It's weird that he would have an accident. Right. Right. And then, you know, as we get to that last shot, it's just kind of over this empty tire space. So the way I interpreted it was the three of them killed this dude and buried him there. But it's strange that. But then I was thinking about it. It's strange that like even if he did die, that no one would have seen the body per se. And it's just like, kind of like buried and people accept that. Well, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you that my interpretation was that they had killed him. I mean, he's clearly not a great guy. And in addition to having cheated on Willie with both Millie and Pinky and, and kind of being lecherous about doing that, he abandons Willie as she's giving birth and goes over to their apartment to, to seemingly try to get himself a threesome or something while his wife is giving birth to this to this eventually stillborn baby. So I definitely agree that they seem to have killed him. I, I didn't get that about the, the, the sort of pile of tires that he was buried under it, but I could see that being possible. But it didn't sound like they had covered it up necessarily. Obviously, that random delivery guy knows that he died. So I suppose it's possible that it was legitimately uh, reported that he is dead in this uh, in a shooting accident, and and That's people right, are allowed to yeah. to bury them to bury people on their own property sure. if it's 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 his family's property or whatever it's possible. So, I mean, again, I don't think we need to interpret things like this. Isn't a movie where you stop and say, "Wait a minute." But legally, would that be acceptable? And that's going to trip you up. No, I get it, but I mean, you know, your mind kind of uh, plays out the possibilities. Uh, like yeah. Dave, how did you how did you take the ending? I hadn't really thought of that pile of tires as necessarily being significant for anything like that. But I, I certainly see where you're coming from, though, and it, it makes sense. I'm just not 100 percent sure. Yeah, and I think that's fair. Everyone, it's fair, but because you're hearing the actions of the women, where you know it's time for dinner. You go do this, you go do this. And now you're moving over to this tire space and Millie has taken over. And it's like, what is this? Why are we closing on this shot, Josh? Right. I mean, and that's a legit question to ask. It is the final shot of the movie. So you would think it does have to mean something. And 
each shot is obviously carefully chosen in this movie. So that I assume would be carefully chosen as well. And I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think, you know, you may very well be right. Um, one of the other things I think is great about the ending, going back to the performances, is that Sissy Spacek comes off as so young yeah. in the way that she's regressed. It's so impressive that actually after watching this movie, I thought, how young was Sissy Spacek in this? Because she she had just made Carrie, where she plays like a 15-year-old or something like that. I thought, oh, maybe she was really young. And she's actually only, like I think, like six months younger than Shelley Duvall. But she comes off as so much younger in this movie. Mm. And it's really impressive. And it's down to the performances, I think. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I'm, and, and we know she kind of gets that... Um... Uh, reverence now, but I think we might be forgetting also of kind of just what a run she went on in the 70s and 80s as well. Yeah, she was in an amazing series of films. Um, I mean, she had done Carrie before this, and she's in uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, which is fantastic. She's amazing in that, which was a few years later, and she's done a ton of great stuff. Yeah, and I think she won the Oscar for Coal Miner's Daughter, if I'm not mistaken. She did, and and deservedly so. She's great in that movie. Yeah. So, any any other weird uh, things you want to point out with this film, or shall we wrap it up and give it a rating? I think it's time to rate this bad boy, Josh. We should mention... Chuck Rocher, I don't, or uh, Rocher is his name, the director of photography. I'm not okay. familiar with him, but man, what a what a good job! So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of this stuff comes together because of the people who, I mean, the the composer, the the painter who created those paintings, the cinematographer. I mean, all of those aspects work because those people do their jobs really well, and they they be they're able to bring Altman's dream to life. So, absolutely amazing work from him as well. So uh, I'm tempted to say we should rate this out of stillborn babies. No, you always <laughs> would. Hey, Josh, yeah. it's called Three Women. Let's rate it out of five women. Out of five women? <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll do that. How many How many three women out of five women do you want to give uh, I'm, I'm giving it, and like we, we've talked about on this, like uh, it's a worthwhile watch. Like I don't love it. I'm not necessarily, I don't hate it. I'm giving it two and a half based on the enjoyment, but I recommend it's like a high two and a half. You should watch the movie. Yeah, I agree. You should watch the movie. And I think, like I said, this was my second time around and I think I appreciated it more. So I'm going to give it a three and a half Whoa. women out of five women. Yeah. Um, so uh, D- Dave, do you want to give us a rating on this? I'm going all the way to four guys. Wow. I really love this movie. Wow. Yeah. All right. I, I, I really, really liked it a lot. I'm glad I got to watch That's it. That's cool. So wow. hopefully this, um, hopefully a few of our uh, listeners will watch it and discover a uh, piece of film that we, well, Josh had already discovered, but that Dave and I discovered on this one. Yeah, it's a worthwhile discovery and I would absolutely recommend it. It is streaming or for rental in a bunch of places. And I, I watched it on a Criterion collection DVD, which, uh, which looked great. So, uh, it was restored, I think in 2004 or something like that. So by the way, uh, Jason was right. It was Ebert's number one for 77. All right. There you go. Roger Ebert knows what he's talking about. Yeah. I, so. I felt this uh, review was quite accurate on this one, Josh. Yeah. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of three women. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we've been talking about Cannes Film Festival award winner Three Women by Robert Altman, which won its award for Shelley Duvall uh, for Best Actress. And and we kind of talked a little bit about the legacy here with Shelley Duvall, who was, was fairly busy uh, as an actor in the 70s and 80s, and as we mentioned, worked with Robert Altman a bunch of times, mostly before this, but also later on, she was in Popeye as Olive Oil, which seems like a sort of a role that she was born to play in a lot of ways. <laughs> Although I've actually not seen, have you seen Popeye, Jason? Uh, yeah, not, not. I've never watched it fully through. It was always on TV when we were kids, so you know, I've seen, I've seen it, but not really seen it. I'd have to really watch it. But yeah, you're right. She is. She had to be all right, right, and I that movie definitely has a has its following. It's kind of a polarizing film, I think, but there's people who really love it. Uh, of course, in The Shining is probably the thing that she's best known for. Yeah. Which again, she had uh, you know a polarizing uh, people hate her in that movie as well. They do, they do. She was nominated for a Razzie for worst actress or worst supporting actress or something like that for The Wacky. Shining, which is kind of insane. And then uh, I think we mentioned too, I remember uh, as a kid watching her on TV 
in like fairy tale theater and those like right. um, uh, Grimm's fairy tales and like things that she hosted on TV. I think that was where I first saw her when I was growing up. And, and, they, and produced those as well. Like she was in the forefront yeah. of those children's programming uh, in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and it is a shame she retired in 2002, but it's not entirely clear if that was a, a retirement fully because she felt like she didn't want to act anymore or partially because she has had some mental health issues. And certainly at the time, her career wasn't going super strongly. The last few things she did were kind of small, like straight to video movies and TV movies and stuff like that. So I feel like she's someone who you know, sadly, if she if she passes away is someone who that people will at that point look back on and really appreciate more than they do at the current moment, which is a shame because she deserves that. appreciation. Yeah. And you think like the, of this generation of actresses and like a lot of them have had that like one last or not even one last, but like that resurgence 20, 25 years later. Um, like right now, I'm thinking of Ellen Burstyn and what she did with Requiem and then that kind of uh, catapulted her back into the limelight for a while. Like a lot of these actresses, and I, and I have no doubt that Shelley Duvall could also uh, have that, uh, you know. But um, I don't. It's not going to happen. No, it seems like that's not where her life is, unfortunately. Um, but as we also kind of mentioned, Sissy Spacek, on the other hand, has continually worked since this, and and continues to work regularly. She's in movies. She's on TV. Um, I know she was fairly recently got a lot of really good notices for her role on Castle Rock on Hulu, the Stephen King series. We were watching that last night, actually. Oh, yeah. How how was her performance in that, Dave? She's quite good. And yeah, it was crazy to go back and see her so young in this. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, she's just, she's been great, obviously, as a a younger actor. And we talked about, I mentioned Carrie and Coal Miner's Daughter. But I mean, in in, in her later years, too, I mean, she's great in In the Bedroom, uh, she was really good with Robert Redford in The Old Man and the Gun, which was just from a couple years ago. So she's had an amazing career, like, for decades. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Janice Rule, I, I actually had to look up. I didn't know that much about her. She died a few years ago. Seemed like a working performer uh, throughout. But, I, you know, when you hear the, the two titans up top, Janice Rule kind of, uh, you don't know as much about. Or I didn't. Anyway. Right. No, I didn't either. And and yeah, she she didn't work that much after this. The fascinating thing, this movie is often regarded as a sort of a, a psychoanalytic film. And Janice Rule left acting in the 80s and got a PhD in, in psychology and became a psychotherapist. So whether she was uh, inspired by this movie, who can say? Yeah. Well, hey, who knows? I do. I did look up uh... Chuck Rose, Rosker, Rosker, whatever, uh, Rosher. We're going to call him Rosher, Charles Rosher. In, uh, yeah. in, in 77, when he did Three Women, he also dire- director of photography for uh, The Late Show and Semi Tough. So, so good year for that man, huh? Yeah, wow. quite a good year. Something may may come up about him again later uh, in our season. Hint, hint, hint. Yeah. Um, and then also I wanted to note related to Sissy Spacek that we, we kind of mentioned this, but of course she was married to, or, and still is married to, uh, Jack Fisk, the production designer who worked on a racer head. And she was, uh, someone who helped finance that. Look at that. Look at all these things, uh, connection back to our earlier. And I, obviously the biggest legacy I'm sure is Robert Altman here and a guy who had an amazing career for the next 30 years or so after this movie came out. Very prolific, very um, wide ranging, let's say, in terms of genre, in terms of success, in terms of acclaim. Um, this movie came during a period in which he was extremely successful uh, in the 70s commercially and with awards. And then he was maybe less so yeah. as he went on in the 80s, although he was still very prolific in making movies. And then he had a huge comeback in the 90s. Right. The Player, Shortcuts, I mentioned Gosford Park, and um, I've seen a lot of his movies. 2000s, Do you have a favorite, Jason, a favorite Altman movie? Well, The Player for me. I mean, you know, the Hollywood story. But I do need to go back and watch a lot more. I also think I've watched, if not all, a good... I I have a very clear memory of watching Tanner 88, which was probably way ahead of its time as one of those political satire things um, that was like an 11-episode I don't even know what it aired on, but it was a very strange project. And was it, I mean, either 88 or right around that time or whatnot. Yeah, I think it was an HBO or Showtime series. And it was one of the earliest kind of premium cable series where they got a major filmmaker to come in 
and uh, and work on something like that. Definitely ahead of its time as far as all of that stuff goes. And I haven't seen it, but I have seen a lot of other Altman. I remember for some reason, because the player came out in the early 90s. Yeah. And for some reason, I started, I, I managed to see that and, and also Shortcuts, which is a great movie, um, when I was like, you know, 13, 14 years old or something like that and decided Robert Altman was great <laughs> along yeah. with my my interest in like Tim Burton and Wes Craven and that kind of stuff was like them and Robert Altman. Well, do you have so, a favorite or? Um, yeah, I, I absolutely, I love California Split with Elliot Gould and George Siegel as this pair of like degenerate gamblers. That movie is fantastic. Um, I really love Shortcuts, but I'm pretty sure I haven't seen Shortcuts since I was like 14. Yeah. So I'd probably need to watch it again. But it's very memorable. And I, I still remember the scene with in that movie with Julianne Moore, where she has, and was one of the big Julianne Moore things in the 90s, where she has this like really like drawn out, like intense argument with her uh, like husband or boyfriend or something in that movie. And she's not wearing any pants right, or right. anything. It's uh, like a bottomless scene. And it's very... Very memorable. Right. It's not there uh, to be sexy or whatnot. It's uh, yeah. no, no, no. It's this sort of like raw thing where she's so like caught up in it that she's not even paying attention to the fact that she's naked. So, um, yeah, that's stuck in my mind for yeah. like 25 years. Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, one movie that, uh, if, if this was piecing it together here, one movie that I want to say is underrated that I think was, um, uh, definitely influential. This this influence, I'd say, was uh, Ruby Sparks with Zoe Kazan and uh, Paul Dano. That's an interesting movie that kind of came out and uh, maybe not a lot of people have seen. That that's that's kind of I mean because like we talked about Persona, single white female. I think Ruby Sparks kind of fits that mold too in its own way. Yeah, maybe so. I like that movie. That's a fun movie. I like it's not that one too. That I would have thought of, but um, yeah, people should see that. And I've never seen single white female actually, but I definitely it's so. Like the idea of it is so well known that I certainly thought of that while I was watching. Yeah. And, yes. and, you know, we talk about Altman, we should mention a few of the big, huge directors that uh, revere him and have been influenced with uh, by him. Obviously we know Paul Thomas Anderson was kind of like his director in waiting on some of these, uh, you know, uh, on like Prairie Home Companion, which was, I think maybe the last thing he directed. And then, for yeah. me, L Richard Linkletter and Noah Baumbach, and uh, we haven't done a Linkletter movie yet. I'm sure we will, but uh, Baumbach, uh, we bo we both love Josh, so he's he's in there as well. Yeah, you can see, and especially actually in Margot at the Wedding, which is the Baumbach film that we've done an episode on, you can see a lot of Altman influence. And P.T. Anderson, I think, is the most Altman influenced sure. director oh, who's yeah. around right now. And he was he was sort of the backup director on Prairie Home Companion when when Altman was not in good health and the the studio decided that in order to greenlight the movie, they needed someone right there with him who could take over if he died during production, which is a really cheerful yeah, thing. Yeah, good, good stuff. Managed, yeah. Uh, and Prairie Home Companion, a fun movie. It's his final movie and it's not like a masterpiece, but it's uh, it's a nice little thing to go out on, I think, so... So I think that's going to do it then. Yes. Any other legacy thoughts you had, Jason? That's it for me, my man. Dave, did you want to say anything about the legacy of three women? I don't think so. I think we covered it. Dave All right. is going back to film school inspired by this. You will be getting a film degree. <laughs> yes. I'm ready. Yeah. What is the influence of this on Lifetime movies? Do you feel like it's had a strong influence? It, I, I, I think so. We, we do have a lot of women... Uh, the taking over identities in a lot of lifetime movies. And, so there you and go. killing uh, uh, jerk ass husbands. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a surprisingly strong legacy here for lifetime. <laughs> so that's three women. And that is this episode of awesome movie year. You can check us out on social media. Yeah. I'm at Jason Harris comedy on Facebook and Instagram. J Harris comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Uh, might be buried under a pile of uh, tires. Who knows? It's a website. <laughs> it's not as bad as I say all the time. But uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesomemovieyear on Facebook and Instagram, awesomemoviepod on Twitter. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at signalbleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find us wherever you listen to this great podcast and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And also, I want to mention Dave has a Patreon by David Rosen. And 
We have a few bonus episodes up there from our 96 episode right now, a 96 season, which includes uh, Waiting for Guffman and Space Jam. Go to spacejam.com. <laughs> Don't go to spacejam.com. Go to Patreon and sign up for bonus content from us, from Piecing It Together, and from Dave's uh, musical career, as well as from All Rice, No Beans. Lots of podcast stuff there. Please check that out. And Jason, what is in our next episode? It's our documentary episode, Josh, and we're going with the biggest, baddest, buffest documentary of 1977, Pumping Iron, the (laughs) documentary that helped make Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger a household name. So tune in next time. impression is going to come up a hundred times in this episode, I'm sure. Listen for Jason's Schwarzenegger impression. (laughs) I'm going to work up a Lou Ferrigno impression before then, too. Also a discussion of that movie. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.